Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the KKXX Studios, Life Radio. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but have been a photographer for over 30 years. If a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you can say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word and the written word. This program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me. And each week we explore one of the cross images and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This devotional is part two of a continuation of an episode titled The Full Beginning. In that episode, I had just shared about how Verna, my first love, the love of my life, my soulmate, was here one day and gone the next. So fast that none of us really had a chance to say goodbye. You see, she had colon cancer, but none of us knew. I suspect she knew something was wrong, but I am sure she did not know exactly what was causing the discomfort. She actually went to the doctor a few months before the incident. I had told her to share everything with the doctor, but when she came back, she told me that she confessed that she had held back certain descriptions of her pain. In hindsight, the type of symptoms she described was the type that might be associated with cancer. That might be why she wanted to avoid sharing that info with the doctor. And the type of cancer we're talking about is colon cancer. So very deep inside, and once it gets to that point, it's many times too late. But it's not like having cancer in your your lungs where you have severe symptoms. This is deep in your intestines where you, you could mimic other symptoms of bodily discomfort. But I suspect there was some fear involved. And there is a cliche that says, fear kills. And that's why I believe the reason that she held back was because of what she had shared with me about her mother's mom, which is that she saw her grandmother lose a very long five-year battle to cancer. And Verna shared with me that she longed to be able to remember her grandmother in her beautiful, healthy state. Instead, all she could see in her mind was the shell of what her grandmother used to be. All she was able to conjure up in her memories was the 75-pound, shriveled-up, whittled-down version of her grandmother. And I remember how Verna had told me that if she ever had cancer or a colostomy, like my grandfather had, let alone both, then she would rather die. Meaning, I felt she was afraid of what the doctor might find. Validation of the cliche I just mentioned, fear kills. Now, why would Verna's situation validate this phrase? Because I believe the doctor could have caught the cancer if Verna had told him everything she was feeling and experiencing. Instead, those few crucial facts Verna held back made the difference. And thus, a few months later, Verna felt ill one day, very ill in fact, so ill that the next day she was gone. We all live through the cliche here today and gone tomorrow. 
And even though I had had an ultra-dimensional experience when she passed, one that provided me a great deal of extraordinary amount of peace, peace about her going to glory early, the fact was I was alone. Especially after the funeral, I found myself very alone. Fortunately, it was not as alone as most widowers, especially for men that were much older than me. But the main reason I say that is because I had a dog, a dog named Love Dog, a German Shepherd Wolf Husky Mix. Actually, I had his mom before her, and his father was another German Shepherd. We meant to have an AKC certified litter of Shepherds, yet when the litter arrived, there was five traditional black and tans and two orange balls of fur. I was perplexed and went to the vet and asked how this may have happened, and he said that another male must have gotten to her during gestation. And it looked to him like a husky. And sure enough, there was a wolf husky that lived down the street. So I sold the five papered dogs and gave away the orange sister and kept the hairy, rust-colored boy. At first, I named him Esau because he was the first man described in the Bible as being very hairy and had a head of red hair. Over time, his personality caused me to change his name to Love Dog because he was a very old, loving soul whose personality was loving and calm. And so, the companionship of my dog kept me in those early days of widowhood. Another reason for not being completely alone is that Verna's cousin, Nathan, who she was very close with, needed a place to live ahead of going into the Air Force Academy. He moved in a few months before that fateful day, and even though he was about five years younger than me, maybe six, we bonded very well. And he acted on his own intuition after the funeral and started inviting his buddies over, many of which he had grown up with or at least gone to high school with. And whether Nate knew it or not, I think he did, it was very timely and very needed. You see, Verna and I had grown into a stage at our church that we spent many times with couples. Yes, we went to Sunday morning and Wednesday night at my church, and still we were going to Sunday nights at her parents' church. But then there are many Friday and Saturday night events where our tight circle of friends were all couples. So after Verna moved on to a heavenly dimension, I felt completely out of place amongst all the couples. I tried for a short amount of time, but it always felt for me, and I think for them as well, very awkward. It felt like they never really knew what to say. Almost every conversation felt awkward, and I left feeling something might be wrong with me. Intellectually, I knew that I wasn't, but... Emotionally, I felt that way. So I slowly backed out and simply stopped showing up. First with our small group of couples and then that church as well. Those awkward encounters were not just constrained to our group of couples, but it felt like it permeated most of my conversations throughout the entire church. So very slowly, I simply quit going, preferring to be alone and yet not fully alone as Nathan's buddies kept coming over to hang out. Simple stuff like a movie on a Friday night or card game on a Saturday night or watching sports on a Sunday. And during that time, Nathan had a friend, a friend named Jimmy, who he had known since they were both two years old and was in a situation where he needed to rent a room. So it was the three of us guys and their friends, and I knew they were coming over only because of what I had gone through, or maybe partially, because they, they really were buddies with Jimmy and Nate, so maybe half and half. But since none of my church friends followed up on me, I really appreciated those guys being with me. And yet, it was for a certain time and season, as Nathan left for the Air Force, leaving just Jimmy and I. 
The buddies started coming over a little less, but it was a natural transition as I had found a new church home that knew me only as a single guy. And a lot had happened during that year of transition. One important aspect is that I let the business Verna had built and the B2B business, the photo business that I was managing, fizzle out. I simply had no desire for anything entrepreneurial or profit-based motives. All I wanted to do when I could make the time was to seek out that feeling of peace that I felt the night that Verna died. The way that unfolded for me was that I would go out after my day job, pick up Love Dog, and chase a sunset. During the initial weeks that Verna passed, I would leave early and hike around to find a cool spot, sit there, and stare at, and meditate on, and try to tap into a feeling of eternity under that heavenly sky. It was the closest I could get to heaven, and so I tried. Over time, I took the camera off the shelf and began capturing the majestic scenes that I would find, with Love Dog by my side. I lived in the valley floor, but there was a high and very long mountain range running north for about 40 miles. This allowed me many roads up to choose from and then find a place to park and hike and, and then to keep hiking around, Love Dog and I, until we would find an interesting spot. And then we'd sit, and then we'd keep sitting and sitting and staring at the sky. We'd also soak in the surroundings, the unique place that we had selected for that night. And the exception to my comment of how we just kept sitting was that Love Dog would go explore around some bushes or trees and then come back and sit next to me. Some circles of exploration longer than others, and at many times I noticed a routine. As his first exploration was a full circle around my spot, then he'd come back and sit for a while and then get up, but this time he'd walk in a much larger diameter circle of smelling and you know, checking out something of interest and marking something that he felt needed marking. Then he'd come back and sit for a while, and maybe he would do it a third time. But after some time, as if he felt the prescribed amount of time had passed, he'd look at me, look around, get up, repeat the effort in one broader last circle before sitting next to me. And each time he got to that point, there was a look of contentment as if he had performed some consequential act. And if he had just fulfill the crucial part of his destiny. And then he'd look at me with those predator eyes, as if to say, the coast is clear. You need not worry. I have encircled thus with my protection. Then he'd sit back down in a way that was uniquely his. You see, he was a large but lanky dog with a ribcage reminiscent of a greyhound. So he'd have to plan each approach just right, positioning that long body so that his head would rest over one of my feet. Then he'd lower that long, drawn-out head under my foot, reposition himself like a person in bed getting the pillow just right. And then, once all was just right, he'd let out this all-is-right-with-the-world type sigh. And after that, he would just chill, as I was doing in my chair, just sitting there and focusing on the sky, the same sky that I had looked at as a brand-new widower on that bench that I found behind the hospital, focusing on the sky with that same knowing, the knowing that she was there, somewhere in a dimension in but beyond that piece of sky and so with love dog on my foot i would once again settle in i think i had a type of sigh as well as i completed a long set of steps to get to where i was at that particular moment and as i mentioned it had become pretty much a nightly routine especially during the weekday nights there was a certain amount of steps to get to that place and create the opportunity for love dog and i 
to take our size and settle in for another night of staring and soaking in that night sunset. A sunset that was unique to that night, never to be seen in that combination of light, color, or clouds ever again. One that was even more unique because I was observing it. Meaning my actual physical location being a huge variable as my longitude, latitude, and elevation from the valley floor made that sunset unique to me, the only person on that part of the mountain looking at the sky. And I'd sometimes wonder how many of the hundreds of thousands on the valley floor were even noticing the colors were changing and the majestic sunset that it was finally shaping up to be. Yes, it was a, a nightly process for me, and I learned to complete early. Early enough, I, meaning I would get there early enough to meditate on the sky and Verna, while also being there well before the sun would approach that romantic point where the sun would kiss the horizon. Most times, I had broken my meditative uh, phase and just began shooting. But sometimes I'd stop or shoot through it. But I would always break into prayers as the horizon began to slowly swallow up the sun. And this habit became a sub-habit to my nightly routine. And to this day, when I see the actual sun hit the tip of the horizon or the first light of sun cresting over the horizon at sunrise. I break into a series of personal prayers, prayers that are unique to me and God, and varied, but they always surround a theme of gratitude and reminding God of how much I love Him. You see, I had never become bitter about my new lot in life. How could I? I had looked upon the radiant energy form I define as God, and I felt His healing rays of love when Verna flatlined, and I became part of that transition from her presence here on earth to the presence in another dimension. I was filled with a peaceful knowing, not just about Verna's destiny, but my destiny too, that I would be reunited with her because I saw it. Many time of waiting, sitting there with my best friend, Love Dog, was my daily recalibration of all of that, finding a spot for that night, and I would be, do it early enough to allow me some spiritual stillness as the day slowly but surely led me to that magical moment when the day transitioned into night. Yes, there was always something unique and captivating as the sun set closer to the horizon line. However, the real transition to me began only after the little, little visible wisps of sun dropped out of sight. It was there that my prayers changed to a different sense of appreciation as it began to well up inside of me. That began a mystical time every night, about an hour of light without light. Yes, the luminosity I still saw in the sky was still being made by the sun, but the sun was no longer visible as it was behind the horizon line. And it allowed for certain frequencies of light, color, and intensity possible that is impossible when the sun is visible. The hue would typically go from a reddish yellow to a more of a differing amber tint to a magenta and to a blue and not just any blue but this unique in-between heaven and earth blue that is so deep it felt my soul could sleep in it. Then the deep blue would give way to the darkness but right before it yields fully an amazing phenomenon would happen and a distinct color reminiscent of chocolate, not just tinges of black, but tinges of black mixed with a mocha hue, would be visible as the day fully gave away tonight. And along the way, capturing the ever-changing scene, stopping only 
maybe to recompose the scene or to focus on eternity while or around shooting. And then in my last moments of meditation, I'd pack up my things, head back to my car, and then head down the mountain. And in hindsight, that time that I arrived home was also part of the process, part of the plan, even if subconsciously. You see, since I was still living in the house we had bought together, I think it helped to have not spent all night sitting focused on the emptiness between the walls and photos of her scattered about. I had not focused on our shared life from the perspective of what I no longer had. Rather, I had spent the night focused on the Creator through His creation and meditating on His omnipresence, having my conscious aware of the bigness of my God rather than the size of any problem I was facing now as a young widower. Actually, there was no room in my psyche on nights like that. The hard drive of my brain was full of scenes my creator had drawn in the sky. And then once at home, I'd unpack and head straight to sleep. No time to dwell on any sad or negative aspects of the past. Just the peace from that night's session, optimism about what I'd find the next night, and then the next night, and the next night. Much like the main character of the movie, The Pursuit of Happiness, he broke his life into phases, into titled sections. And my title for that time of my life was Chasing Sunset's Phase. And the nights turned into weeks and months, and people that knew me were aware of my routine. After work, chasing sunsets, and then spending time with Jimmy's buddies on Friday and Saturday night, and then church by myself on Sunday. Of course, the one who saw this routine the most was my roommate Jimmy. And one day, when I was mentioning that I was about to go on a 30-mile drive to drive up on a street to ascertain a spot where I could hike from and where I could hopefully find a place to park. To Jimmy, that sounded like a lot of work just to maybe find a place to shoot from. But I was willing, as I'd done it many times before. Many times I would end up finding new, unique spots. But I think the intent from Jimmy was twofold. Yes, what he was about to suggest was to save me time, and the other was for him and I to hang out together. What I'm saying is Jimmy offered to take me that night to a ridge much closer to my to our house a ridge that i had never explored as of yet as i was so focused on the eastern mountain range i had not even considered checking that ridge out it's it seemed only a few hundred feet high from the valley floor compared to the 2000 foot high of the eastern mountain range so i agreed to check it out with jimmy jimmy took me to a, a back way to the ridge because the way up the front drive was locked by a gate. And from the back way, we did not have to walk far to find a bluff that normal rock formations allowed us to sit on comfortably, staring southwest. We talked about lots of varying things, most in a philosophical manner, which was our custom. And I remember on that first night on our ridge, a conversation turned to God. And I remember him saying how annoying it was to him to hear someone say that, I know God usually said by someone trying to get a following or have people view God the way they do. I agreed that nobody can really say they know God. But moreover, having an experience with God is unique to us and that the way I reposed to that experience was unique to me. And I've had some pretty intense experiences. But no matter how I say or preach to someone, 
no one will ever feel the same way I do about God, since they did not have my experience. They could, should, never be expected to feel or think like I do. Then Jimmy took us somewhere I did not expect. He asked me, can anyone say they know the internet? They really know all there is to know about the internet? Could anybody honestly say they know everything about every aspect, about every web page of every website? And that even if somebody really could say that they do, in the next second they could not because new websites are being added every moment of every day. Not even a government or agency could adequately say they know it all. And thus, how it is that someone could claim that they know God, that they can know all there is to know about the creator of this world, the solar system, and the universe, a being beyond time existing before the Big Bang. No, no one human has the ability or faculties to understand an omniscient and omnipresent being. It was just a few of the epiphanies we had that night, and in general, in our relationship. It was a great night of conversation before heading home. It was a week or two later that I headed back to that ridge by myself, but not really, because it was just Love Dog and I. That first time we hung out, I mean, that the first time with Jimmy, we hung out on one side of the, of, of the cliff, but now I was discovering how expansive the ridge really was. The first thing I saw was a two-story house that seemed to be a custom-built house. And it seemed that back in the day it used to be a very nice house. But as I got closer, I noticed a mix of debris, such as clothes and toys strewn about, mixed with some furniture items. I did not go in that first day but because I was unsure that it was really abandoned, but it sure appeared that way. And as I walked around, I found a bit more household items littering the area outside the house. And then I found a barn with a lot of eclectic items from a bygone era. I noticed a path leading away and down the hill. I followed it and found another house on the middle side of the north slope. This house was a bit smaller, and it seemed that this house was a, a guest house or a servant quarters or a large version of a mother-in-law, mother-in-law type house. It was still a big house by most standards, but it was also appearing as if it were abandoned. Strange, I thought. I started back up the hill as the sun was sinking low towards the western mountains. I thought it a good time to scout out a spot to shoot before the impending sunset. And it was just before all the variables of a good sunset were coming together that I saw it for the first time, from about a hundred yards away. I saw this little white cross up on a little bluff. Of course, as I walked closer and closer, the cross and the bluff seemed to get bigger and bigger. As I got to this white wooden cross, which seemed to be about 12 to 15 feet high, atop a 10 to 12 foot high bluff, was full of tall grass, the three foot high grass you see in summer. I remember looking around and back from whence I had come, I could no longer see the house. In fact, I could not see anything from on that flat top of the ridge that seemed to be at least 50 acres or more in every direction. And it dawned on me, I could not see the streets around the ridge, meaning they could not see this cross either. I began to wonder who had put this cross here, of all places. It obviously was not put there to be seen by the general public, so why? Why would someone go to the trouble to erect a cross in the middle of nowhere? I quit pondering about the origins of the cross and began noticing the colors changing in the sky. My attention changed to the transition zone of land and sky at the horizon line, and not just in front of me, but I turned completely around and I realized that I had a 360-degree horizon line, something I had hardly never experienced on the eastern mountain range, mostly because the mountains are so big. 
But at this new spot, it allowed me a view of the horizon because I was 200 feet plus above the valley floor that I could see every horizon line around me. I knew I had found a special spot as I scanned the sky to evaluate how it would turn out. That night, the heavens were filled with about 80% clouds, and the sun was playing this dance, or a game, or you could call it a light sport, (laughs) meaning the clouds were moving the sun, which was getting close to the horizon line, but it would poke through the opening between the clouds and create these majestic mini-shows. I say mini because within a few seconds, the shaft of light would be blocked by clouds again. I started composing, waiting for the shaft to pop through the composed horizon line at first, trying to get the shaft of light shooting from left to right across the scene. And then it seemed to angle up, and all of a sudden it impacted me. The realization that the horizon line that the sun was about to be kissed was exactly at eye level. I mean, intellectually, I knew the western mountains were thousands of feet high, but since they were 40 or 50 miles away, it really seemed that my camera and I were exactly the same elevation as the horizon line. And then it happened, just as the sun was starting to go down past the horizon line, a shaft of light popped up. Huh, I'd never seen this before. It was so acute that my intuition knew to shoot it vertically. I tried, but the cloud obscured my shaft. Then it happened again, but the composition did not resonate. So I remember backing up and retreating to the right, trying to quickly find a compelling composition. That 10% of the foreground I mentioned when I create skyscapes is crucial to a compelling image. And I kept backing up until I was next to the cross. And then with a few more backward steps, the cross was in, was in front of me. And I said something like, like this to myself, oh, the cross is vertical. And thus I backed up a wee bit more and composed the cross in between the sunset. But now the sun only had about 5% left. Where had the time gone? The sun moves so much faster than most people realize. And tonight, I'd miss most of the sun trying to recompose. And before I could finish that thought, the sun was gone. And then, wow, another shaft, fire yellow, shot up through the clouds. Yet this time, a bit broader and higher. Another difference of this shaft was that it was not shooting straight up, but up and angled just a bit to the right, which in this case means it landed directly on the crossbeams of the cross. The light shaft landed in the middle of where the horizontal and vertical beams met. And the rays continued past the beams and spread itself across the cloud bank behind the top of the vertical beam. I was amazed. I knew I had something special, even though I could not see it except in my mind's eye. Meaning I was still shooting film and my camera had no screen. If I wanted to see what I shot, I had to develop the film and then make a contact sheet or prints. As a young photographer back in that era, you had to know what your camera is capable of and then pre-visualize your settings to create what you wanted to come out. On this night, shooting the cross for the first time, I felt like I had captured something unique, very much like the Ting in the movie Tin Cup, where the golf instructor character, played by Kevin Costner, tells the caddy character, played by Cheech Marion, that when he is teeing off and he hits it perfectly, he feels this internal ting. And I felt the ting that night. And I kept shooting for a wee bit longer. But as I mentioned, the light moves fast. And so I packed up and went home. 
The next day, I grabbed the roll from the photo lab, and as I thumbed through the prints for the first time, I came across one print that I, I knew was that ting. And seeing it in print felt like a double ting. And that one cross is the one that I entitled The Beginning. Why? Was it because it was the first night that I shot the cross? Not exactly. You see, when I got home, I went through the pack of prints from that roll and was able to really spend time looking at them. I was all alone except for Love Dog, who was, yes, resting his head on my foot. And with my picks and hands, I kept looking at the image that had provided me with that ting. And I realized, as I was focusing on the rays, that I was being spoken to. And to hear what the message I was being given will have to wait for next week. Part 3 on the next episode. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me devotional program heard every week here on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed, like this week's image, The Beginning, along with many other verspirations, then check out Rob Holt Inspires on Instagram. And if your church, youth group, or school would like to learn how to fundraise through our cross products, hear other cross podcasts, then log on to roberholt.com. That is R-O-B-E-H-O-L-T dot com.